0: Hello, today's podcast is brought to you by gearsource.com, the only global marketplace dedicated to professional production gear. With people strategically located throughout North America, Europe, and Asia, Gearsource has created a marketplace that helps you find a home for your surplus gear, whether that's just up the road or on the other side of the world. Our new state of the art the system helps to eliminate fraud, but also makes payments easy in whatever currency you or your buyer may prefer. And if you're looking to add to your arsenal of quality production gear, why not save some money and buy with confidence on Gearsource.com? So go ahead, try it. Buy or list something for sale for free today. <laughs> Well, hello there, hello there, and hi, how you doing? And welcome to Geezers of Gear, episode number 125. And here we are about a week before Christmas. I think it's, uh, is it exactly a week before Christmas? I think it is. Christmas is next week. Christmas is next Friday. That is insane. And so I'm sitting here in South Florida and it's funny because it's uh, woke up this morning to like 45 or 46 degrees and, you know, which for us is very, very cold, of course. And so, um, you know, I, I have this uh, fireplace thing on YouTube playing on the television with Christmas music on acoustic guitar or something and it just kind of really feels a little Christmassy and you want to look outside and see snow, but there is none, although Uh, I did travel this week. I was up in the Northeast, and I uh, was scheduled to fly back at about 9 o'clock on the evening that the storm hit, the storm, the big one. And uh, I managed to get out a little bit early. I left at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was snowing fairly heavily, and they had to de-ice the plane and stuff, but I did get out relatively on time, and I was happy I left early because I think flights started getting delayed and canceled and stuff later in the night, so... Yeah, that worked out okay. And uh other than that, what's going on? It's been a kind of an interesting week, you know, the level up uh festival or show or concert or whatever it's called went very very well. They did a great job. Uh you know, an excellent job really. And uh so I commend them, that team uh are just a passionate, incredible group of people. It was very hard to get that thing done and they finally did get it done and uh, our gang at We Make Events was very proud and happy to be a partner—not a partner, because that sounds like we actually did something. But we just all we did was we supported them in the background. So um, very happy to be a part of it, and uh, congratulations on a on an amazing job on getting that done. And if you haven't seen it, I don't know if there's a way to rewatch it or anything. I just caught part of it because I was. Uh, Uh, in meetings and stuff I don't remember exactly what it was that stopped me from watching more of it but I think I was in a meeting but anyways um, yeah so good job on that and what else it's just you know another nutty week of politics and COVID and all the crazy stuff and you know unfortunately I'm starting to hear more and more companies that are actually making the dreaded decisions uh, recently because they've got now banks starting to put pressure on them, or they just have no ways to pay their bills, or no income, or whatever it is, and it's just a terribly sad story. And our ridiculous cast of idiots in the government uh, just have not done anything to to fix this. You know, they've you know the fact that a bunch of politicians can't sit down in a room for a couple of hours and figure out how to spend our money uh, to support us with our money is is beyond me. I just can't figure it out. And, you know, they have to throw in their crazy special interests that have nothing whatsoever to do with COVID. And then they fight about whose special interests are more important than the other special interest. It's just crazy. But anyways, I give up. So today I have a really interesting gentleman, a guy who is production manager and LD and all kinds of things. He's been working 15 years for Ario uh, Speedwagon. Great guy, Michael Richter. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How about yourself? Really, really good. Well, actually, you know what? My friend Ben Saltzman says COVID good, so that's what I am. I'm, I, you know, if if you would have looked at today like two years ago and gone, holy shit, you're going through all that stuff, you must be miserable. But when you're in COVID and everybody's in COVID, you kind of look around and go, yeah, I guess I'm all right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, I understand. I'd say I'm right there with you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's screwed up. Right there with. You. I mean, you know whenever I talk to guys like you, whether it's designers, production managers, front of house guys, whatever, I am, I feel less sorry for myself. And it's not that I feel sorry for you guys, but at least I work. You know what I mean? At least I have a job to go to every day. And most days it doesn't pay very well, that's for sure. But every day I'm really busy. Every day I've got meetings and and conference calls I've got to be on and customers and vendors and, you know, it's still business as usual for me. It just doesn't pay very well. It's business as usual without the, without the income. You know what I mean? So, whereas you guys like, you know, you probably haven't worked much in the last eight or nine months, I'm guessing.
1: I haven't, uh, since March 17th, I haven't done a show. Certainly the only thing I've done in the last, since March 17th was, um, you know, one of the guys I work for is Brian Setzer, and he decided to sell off some of his old inventory, guitars oh. and amps and whatnot. So I went up to the to our locker in Los Angeles and sorted through it and uh, palletized it up and sent it out for sale. And that's the only thing, I, which was a day of work. That's the oh, only wow. thing I've done. How did, how did he sell 17- all that
0: stuff? Did he send it to like Reverb or something and they sold it for him or... <laughs> He
1: actually did, yeah. I palletized it, sent it to Reverb, and apparently there was or maybe still is a Brian Setzer page, but oh, that's like really thirty nine cool. guitars and a couple of dozen amps. I mean stuff that's been
0: wow. You know,
1: a lot of guitars I've watched him play on the tours I've done with him over the years and then a lot that have just been sitting on shell on the shelves in the locker in yeah. road cases that he never played. I-, I don't really I don't know what his reasoning behind doing it was, but um yeah. he did it.
0: Yeah. He did it. So
1: Maybe, there's a lot of empty maybe, shelf space in the locker now
0: <laughs> maybe he's going through divorce <laughs> that usually causes people to look around and go what can I sell <laughs> you know
1: yeah well actually he's not yeah, um, you him. know I I, I I don't know we he I I, I have no idea why but yeah. um some people out there got some amazing pieces I'll tell you what so
0: so that was, was what some, two days you said uh actually I did it in
1: a day and oh. that was back in that would have been I think I did that in May, April or May. And so that's it. That's, that's what like I've done.
0: Only work you've had since March. Yeah. Yeah. You know, wow.
1: I mean, I've, I have at the request of the, the other artists I work for as manager, I've called a half dozen venues in 10 months to see if we can fit our show into their venue, which yes. was, you know, six, 10 minute phone calls. But yeah. that beyond that, that's it.
0: Yeah. As far wow. as, yeah. Work. So, yeah. It's, uh, how are, how yeah. are you keeping busy? Like, did you learn to cook or something or landscaping? Oh. Or what the hell are you doing? Well, I, I not a lot. Yeah. Wow.
1: <laughs> I, 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 I ride my bike. I got my bike, which I've had since college back in working order. And I ride my bike every day or Good almost every day. Good for you. And I bought an elliptical machine off a of friend. And um, so if I don't get on my bike, I go out in the garage and get on that thing in the morning.
0: Good for you. And,
1: uh, you know, did a million projects around the house and yeah. ran out of projects. Now it's time to, you know, start cleaning the barbecue again and the oven for the second time, you know?
0: You know, it's, um, it's funny. We're going to have so many production guys and lighting guys and stuff with like just these incredibly immaculate houses with, you know, new floors and new bathrooms and new kitchens and it's incredible. yeah it's crazy yeah no. i
1: mean i've got to clean out the garage and my closet those are the last two things that i've had on my to do list for months and i'm afraid to do them cuz then once i do then i don't have a tremendous amount to do after that
0: but yeah, you got nothing now that to the weather too
1: Exactly. Now that the weather's finally cooled down, I think I'm going to tackle the garage in the near future just because it's, you know, how the garage gets.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, the good thing is the focus on exercise is really good. And, you know, a lot of guys I've talked to, Cosmo was one who lost, like, I don't remember, 40 pounds or something. Um, But a lot of guys I've talked to have done the same thing. And then there's a few guys, like I know one guy who put on 75 pounds during COVID and that ain't good, you know, because. Yeah, that's where, that's where you become uh, a lot more, you know, COVID can get you at that point. Like, I'm not afraid of COVID because I'm in pretty good shape, and I'm not being cocky or anything. But usually people who are fit and, and in pretty good shape and not 75 pounds overweight, you're going to be okay. Uh, it's generally the obese and stuff like that that are, and I, I mean, I'm not trying yeah. to generalize or simplify such a terrible virus or anything, but that's what I've seen.
1: Yeah, no, I, I get it. I know I've been exercising every, it's just to stay on top of it. It's a, for my health, B gets me out of the house, C something to do, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I enjoy the the fresh air and you know, I go do, I can ride, I do my little, it's just street riding, but I'm, I do 10 miles in an hour, you know, long wow. just under an hour. It's amazing. I have one of the, I put an app on my phone. I track my progress, that sort of silly stuff,
0: but yeah, just for the sake of why not? Yeah. So yeah. Good for you, man. That's, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm glad you're doing that because you know, again, there's way too many people who are sitting on the couch watching every single series of Netflix and eating potato chips. And that's not uh, something that's conducive to good, healthy living. That's for sure. So I've
1: watched, I've watched a ton of stuff, but I don't, you know, yeah. Generally I do it at night. I try to keep myself busy all day. It just, it just seems like I was just having this conversation with a, guy I tour with front of house guy the other day and it just seems like the next thing you know, every day, it seems like I'm climbing back in bed. seems like bedtime comes very quickly on a daily basis during the pandemic, which I don't, I, I, you know, on the road, we, uh, there's hardly any sleep, you know, we're constantly working. It's just, we're so. But
0: I think that's got something to do with it. I think that's why, like when I talk to other people who are out of work right now, you, you know, they're just, literally binge watching television but when i talk to production lighting whatever crew people they are incredibly productive and i think that's just who we are you know i i just think that the industry isn't full of lazy people for the most part you know and and uh Uh, yeah
1: i would agree with that 100 percent. and without sounding ridiculous i am the the least lazy person i know I, i move and shake and go 24, seven, If yeah. I can, I am consistently working and in motion. It's just, yeah, for so whatever this, this reason, be it's you, what I do.
0: This is killing, oh, it's killing me. I'm yeah. a worker. I yeah. work. It's, it's killing
1: me. You know, it's just killing me. I'm sitting here with my laptop in front of me and it just defaulted to the, um, my home, when, when it goes to sleep, it shows pictures and all these pictures are going by of stages and, gigantic crowds. And it's just like, Oh
0: fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and I, I I know your brother, Larry is, what is he a promoter or something, right? He
1: he is. He, he, my brother has a production company. um, It's called Richter entertainment group. And he, he, his company books and produces shows. Um, So how's he doing through this? uh, Miserable. It's funny. I talked to him yesterday. Yeah, he's he's not enjoying the experience. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But and, you know, he has rebooked. He has several venues that he he books like summer series in and he's booked and rebooked and rebooked, uh, you know, next year nightmare. six times. He he keeps moving dates. He's on the phone weekly with the agents. He's telling me, OK, well, we had it booked for March. Let's put it to April. OK, well, it's not going to be April anymore. Let's move it to June. He just keeps moving dates around, um, that's, that he doesn't know that nobody knows if are going to be able to even happen.
0: Yeah. So, um, you yeah, know, there's just so much unknown in trying to book something like that into the future. If live nation struggles with it, you know, I can't imagine for a, a small, you know, promoter, uh, it's just gotta be brutal.
1: Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he, th- the upside is he's got a lot of inventory booked yeah the downside is he doesn't know if he's going to be able to do any of the events
0: yeah yeah (laughs) well at some point there's going to be a lot of activity you know it's just when is that friggin' point so that's the million dollar question yeah yeah so michael you've been you've been doing this a while this this production thing so I think as I recall, you have, um, your father was in the business somehow, or was what, how did you get into it? Like what, where, where'd your exposure come from?
1: Well, my great grandfather, uh, owned movie theaters in the silent movie era. And he was in New York area and then he moved to Rhode Island and Uh, open some more movie theaters. I was just talking to my dad about this recently. He had gotten approached by some people who said, Hey, there's this new thing coming out called talkies, talking movies. You should get involved. And apparently my great grandfather said, Oh, that'll never work. And he (laughs) passed, which was apparently a big mistake on his part, but he moved to Rhode Island. He opened, um, you know, non-talking movie theaters. Um, When he passed away, he passed them down through the family. My dad got some, Um, they, didn't do very well because they were still silent theaters. And then the talkies had come out and kind of put them under. Um, and the, all the seats from the theaters that were owned by the family ended up getting given to a brand new repertory theater that opened up in Rhode Island called the Trinity Performing Arts Center, which is still there, which is extremely famous. A lot of shows go from there straight to Broadway. My uncle founded it and took the seats from my great grandfather's old movie theaters into the original version of Trinity Repertoire oh, That theater. is cool.
0: Um,
1: yeah, so that was sort of wild. And so then my dad was was into uh, the theater and because of all of this, he got really into theater, Broadway, stuff like that, and wanted to potentially go down that road and um, was kind of discouraged by his parents. So he just on the side directed some shows with youth groups and stuff when I was a kid. and he used to take us to New York all the time because we I grew up in Rhode Island and we go to Broadway shows. And next thing I know, he took us to a concert. Um, I, he The first show he took me to was John Denver. And I was like, holy cow, what is this? You know, in an arena in Rhode Island. And then he took us to see Billy Joel. And then he took us to see the Bee Gees in their heyday. And it was I was just blown away by the concert experience. I had, I had been to Broadway shows, but the concert experience in an arena with people standing up and cheering and drinking beer and the whole thing and the noise of it and the volume level, uh, I was intrigued Yeah. Um, and went to a lot of shows as a kid. So my dad sort of got the whole entertainment side of things into my blood. I um, decided at some point that I wanted to get into the movie business, I wanted to make movies. And that's what I was gonna go to college for. My brother had left Rhode Island, went out to Santa Barbara, uh, UC Santa Barbara, uh, to go to college. I think he was gonna study business or whatnot, but there was a on campus uh, organization called the Program Board, which was a student run organization with student fee money. And the students booked concerts on campus with student money for students. So my brother started becoming a booking agent, basically booking shows for the university. And they were booking, you know, the simple minds and fishbone and steel pulse. This was back in the, uh, mid to late eighties. And, you know, they were booking real talent and, um, Funny enough, one of the guys he worked with on the program board at UC Santa Barbara was a guy named Lee Zeidman, who has done a multitude of things in the industry. But he is the operations manager at the Staples Arena in L.A., which is a huge undertaking between the Kings and the Lakers and all the shows they do. That building before COVID is one of the busiest in the country. Yeah. yeah, So Larry um, came out of that it was booking shows and working and doing shows in college. And then he uh, ended up graduating and getting hired to become the general manager of the Santa Barbara County bowl. And he ran that. Uh, I was back in Rhode Island, listening to my brother tell me stories of working backstage on concerts. And I thought, well, that sounds really cool. How can I do that? And at the time I was going to Rhode Island community college and I went and discovered that they had a similar program board kind of, you know, an organization that the students put concerts on and they had a smithereen show coming up. I think I was like 19 and I walked in and said, Oh, you guys are doing concerts. Do you use students for help? They said, yeah, we need stagehands. Do you know what to do? And I said, of course I do. Let me come work the show. And I had no idea what to do. <laughs> uh, but, but my brother said, a truck's going to pull up. You're going to help unload it. Find a guy on the touring crew and attach yourself to his hip and just harass him to into ask him a hundred times, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And I did. And I, that was the first show I ever did. I unloaded the show. I got paid to see the smithereens play. I was blown away. Um, and that's was sort of my start. Shortly thereafter, not to ramble, um, I had a girlfriend at the time who I was 18, 19 and the only way her parents were letting her out of the house was to get married. And she was trying to pressure me into marrying her so I could get her away from her folks, um, which there were reasons she wanted to get out of there. Seems seems perfectly logical. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I had no interest in that. My dad was getting afraid I was going to do something stupid, foolish, So he said, why don't you go to California and visit your brother? So I jumped on a plane. I flew out to Santa Barbara where I had never been. My brother was living in an apartment on a cliff with a hundred foot drop to the ocean. And I walked in and was like, wow, this is awesome. And the funny thing was, um, one of my brother's best friends in college who became his partner for a while. And they're still very good friends. I walked into the apartment. My brother wasn't even home on the first day I arrived. I took a taxi from the airport and I walked in and there was this guy sitting there on the couch with a smoking bong in front of him. And his name was Kevin Lyman. I don't know if you know who Kevin Lyman is, but Kevin, Kevin is the founder of the warped tour. Oh, um, and the owner of the Warp Tour, Kevin, you know, and my brother were producing shows back in college together, and he went on to become—he—he he is, uh, you know, he's a heavy hitter yeah. for what it's worth. I mean, you know, he—he he built the Warp Tour into the monster it became.
0: That's crazy. Um,
1: so that was the my first person I met in California was Kevin Lyman, and uh, you know, I'm still friends with him. Um, and then my brother came home. But uh, so my brother at the time had been running the County bowl as the general manager. I said, I want to work there. So he made me a runner. And and then I also learned how to run the ticket master system in the box office. And so like for the shows, when the sting would go on sale, I would do the ticket on sale. Um, And uh, yeah, that's, that's how it all happened. I mean, because of my brother, I got interested. I walked into Rhode Island college and, uh, Community College of Rhode Island lied that I knew how to be a stagehand, and you know what's off funny, my career went from there.
0: That's such a common statement, though, that people make when when I have them on this this podcast is that, um, like, I'll ask people all the time, you know, how did it work? What you know, what's what's something like what, what's something you want to teach to people? What do you want to? And one of the common answers is just say yes or just, you know, bluff and tell people you know how to do everything and then figure it out. You know, say yes and figure it out, really, is is so common. I
1: I agree with that to a point, as long as you don't get yourself in over your head, you know. But, uh, you know, at the time, I was lying about knowing how to unload a truck and twist the latch on a road case, you
0: know. Yeah, Um, yeah.
1: But but I did what my brother said. I found like I don't know the guitar tech. I don't remember and just attached myself to his hip and wouldn't leave the guy's side. And and he was appreciative of the help and it kept me working and busy. And it appeared well, that I knew what I was doing and I faked my way through it into one, getting another show. After yeah, that, you know,
0: one of those stories was was Peter Morris when he was working for Mac Davis. He was I believe he was the production manager, and they told him that they were looking to hire a, a lighting designer. Uh, to run the lights during the show and stuff and he goes well what's that pay and they told him and he goes well i can do it you know i'm not doing anything during the show just i can do it and oh you know how to run lights oh yeah you know he'd, <laughs> he'd never done lights in his life right so uh you know he figured it out and and ever since then he's been a, an ld so you know i mean it, it's just funny that some of the stories that have come out of that you know uh Uh, one of my favorites too, Chaz Harrington was just kind of hanging around the house. And one of his neighbors said, Hey, you want a gig? And he, he dragged him into a recording studio. And he became like a, uh, like a recording assistant who ran and got coffees for people and stuff. And he worked the night shift and started to learn how to engineer recordings, learned how to work the board and stuff. And this relatively new band comes in and they're recording and he became an engineer on that that album, and, and it was Dire Straits. And uh, wow. so, you know, then at the end of the recording, they really liked Chaz, and they were like, well, you know, we we already have a sound guy for our tour, but why don't you come to America with us? Do you know how to do lights? And he goes, oh, yeah, I could figure that out. You know, and again, never done lights in his life, and, and uh, you know, he went on to become their LD for a long time, and Steve Miller, and a bunch of other bands, and has ha- owned a pretty successful lighting company ever since, so. I love yeah, that. well
1: I I that's what I did and and the first thing I did when I got to the west coast and my brother gave me a job was I like I said I became the runner at the County Bowl, which is called the Santa Barbara Bowl now, but at the time it was the Santa Barbara County Bowl and um uh, the first show I ever did in California was Stevie Ray Vaughn and I was a huge fan and he my brother said, look, they're going to, I'm going to introduce you to this guy. He's the production manager. He's going to tell you what to do. Just do what he says. And you're going to run errands and maybe go get liquor or go to the laundromat or whatever. I, I, or go pick somebody up. Just do what he says and be quiet. I said, yeah. okay, I can do that. I go, and how much do I get paid? He goes, a hundred dollars. I get a hundred dollars for the day and I get to see the rock show. He goes, yeah, I'm like, oh my, I'm, you know, I'm 19. <laughs> I'm fresh into California from Rhode Island. And I was like, I've, I've hit, this is amazing. What's better than this? So the, the very first run I ever did of my life as a runner, they said, go to this hotel, knock on the door. um, Someone's going to give you laundry, take the laundry to the laundromat. And I thought, well, how lame is that? But okay, fine. I'm getting a hundred dollars, whatever. So I go to the hotel a few miles from the venue. I knock on the door, the door opens a crack. I said, hi, I'm the runner from the County Bowl. I'm supposed to pick up some laundry. And I hear somebody go, oh, yeah, cool. Hold on. Door closes. I hear the bolt unlatch. The door opens. It's Stevie Ray Vaughan standing in front of me.
0: Oh, my God. With
1: with his dirty laundry in a bag. And he goes, hey, you going to take it to the laundry, man? I said, yeah, that's what they told me to do. You're production manager. And he says, can I go with you? I go, you know, at this point, I've never done this. I don't know if it's okay for the artist to go with me. So I went, sure, why not? You know? (laughs) Um, so, so he jumped in my car with me and his cowboy hat and boots and the buckle, the whole thing. And why do you want to go with you to the
0: laundromat? He was well, just because bored? he
1: wanted to go, he was bored, and he's like, Hey, can you take me to a drugstore? I need to get some stuff. And I said, Sure. So we went to the laundromat, we went to the drugstore, and then he goes, Hey, I'm hungry. Are you hungry? And I go, I can eat. And he goes, Well, let's go eat. And he took me to lunch. We went and got sandwiches, and That's I awesome. sat there that day eating lunch with Stevie Ray Vaughan, um, you know, it, waiting for somebody to recognize the guy. Cause I just assumed that everybody knew who he was and not one person even acknowledged wow. his presence, which, which blew me away. Um, that and then I his... took him to the did bed. He,
0: did he tell you anything? Like, did he, was he talking or was he just eating?
1: Yeah, no, no. We talked the whole time. You know, That's um, I wasn't, completely up to speed on the fact that he was recently sober and this, that the next thing I just knew I liked the guy's music and he was a great guitar player, you know? Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, that's so cool.
1: And I, and I'd seen him play with Eric Clapton on television and Jeff Beck and all kinds of people. I'm like, I can't believe I'm sitting here with this guy. I'm a, I'm a big guitar guy. Yeah. Um, so that, so, and then, uh, I drove him the sound check and I had a, Camaro at the time with T-tops, you know, and the T-tops were removed and there's this one street called Anna Pamu street that takes you into the entrance of the Santa Barbara County bowl. And it's called Anna Pamu street because there are these trees called Anna Pamu trees and they've, they've grown up and then over from either side of the street and met in the middle to create basically oh, a, like a canopy t- tunnel, yeah, tunnel canopy cool. tunnel. And he thought it was, Amazing. And he stood up on the front seat of my car and took pictures as we drove down Anapamu Street into the entrance of the bowl. So somewhere in the world, potentially, are pictures he took from the front seat of my car. That is super you friggin' know. awesome. Oddly enough. You know, then the, then the next show I did – well, I should – I'll just tell you this part I, to – Cut, to move way forward ahead. I became a lighting guy eventually, but I toured and I was the head electrician on a tour. It was, um, Robert Cray, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Joe Cocker, and sometimes Eric Clapton. And I, so I ended up working for Stevie and I reminded him of that. And this was many years later, I don't know, probably 10 years later. And he remembered it all, which was crazy. Oh, that's and awesome. If you ever saw him, he used to play behind his head, yeah. which I thought was just amazing. And I was the dimmer guy at the time. I'd be sitting at the dimmers and he used to come over every night during the show and put his back to the audience and put the guitar behind his head and play for me. You know, he'd face me and play behind his head. Like, look what I'm doing. You know, yeah. it was, he was, he was an awesome human being. It was a great, it was a great thing. But yeah, he remembered many years later that funny, yeah. that, uh, that, that story. That's a really cool the. Yeah, it was a cool story. That was my first day in rock and roll in California. And I thought, yeah, I could do this. This is cool. Oh, no shit. Can, yeah.
0: But they probably all, <laughs> all the gigs got boring after that though. You know, you don't well, you often know, the, get to take the, the second, artist out for the day.
1: No, The second gig I did, uh, it was Crosby, Stills and Nash and they said, go to the hotel and pick some people up. And I picked up Crosby, Stills and Nash and had him in my car. And that was Jesus. like mind blowing. And then the third gig I did was the Kinks, and they said go pick some people up. And I picked up Ray Davies and Dave Davies, and I remember them sitting in the back seat of my car, fighting with each other, yelling at each other, as I'm driving <laughs> in the sound check. And I just thought, wow, this is just fucking wacky. Um, and and uh, don't, one any, time don't any don't any
0: of these gigs have like well, vans or limos or SUVs or anything? Like, why are you well, always I, the driver? I, I, I,
1: at the time, it was my Camaro, you know? I, don't know, I had these guys in the back of my Camaro, you know, occasionally there was a van, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm never the one the one runner thing I'll never forget was I picked up Van Morrison and his uh, not Van Morrison. um uh Roy Orbison and his wife and had them in the backseat of my car. And oh, he just cool. chatted me up the whole way from the hotel to the thing. So you know, I'm 19 years old, with these icons in the backseat of my car. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is this is cool. But, well, um, and it's, I,
0: you know, I'm sure you've tried crawling in the back seat of a Camaro. It's not the most comfortable <laughs> experience, you know. No, like getting in all, is but, a bitch, know. let alone sitting back there. So, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. It's funny they oh, pick yeah. you. But, uh,
1: yeah. Well, it was the car I had, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So, but, uh, I, I eventually said to my brother, and so I, when I was, not getting sent out to do runs, I started hanging around on the stage and watching and watching the union stations and the touring crews set the show up. And I said to my brother, I, I don't want to drive people around. I want to do that. And um, it was a union house and I obviously wasn't in the union, but my brother somehow managed to talk to the union steward um, at the time and to make a long story short, I got put in the back of a truck after a year or so. And I got to be a truck loader and unload the trucks. The union took me on. I was, I was allowed to get in the truck, unload the truck. And when the truck was empty, I was done. And then I would come back for loadout and reload the truck, but they wouldn't let me work on stage. Well, I decided I'm already here. I'm not going to drive home. I'm going to stay. And I stayed on site every day and started becoming really friendly with these much older than me union stagehands, And they started teaching me things. I learned how to focus a park hand and climb a genie lift and stack a PA and patch a stage. And I would work all day. So if, if the band had cut the labor call from 40 guys down to five for the day, I was the sixth guy I worked for free on my own to learn. And I learned, cool. um, I learned a lot. I learned sound. I learned lights. I learned a little bit about backline and I worked every day, you know, years later I started actually getting, they, uh, I, I got to, I started getting show calls occasionally, like on a bigger show to be able to be a, like a deckhand and move backline around the set changes and stuff. Um, I, I guess I learned pretty well. I did pretty well. Um, yeah. And I, I started getting staying on the clock. I also quickly figured out that the way to make money in that side of the business, like a stagehand, is to stay on the clock all day because you get paid by the hour. So, um, I, I started honing my my uh, uh, skills in every department I could not having any idea this was what I was going to do for a living or what I was going to do with it. But I just loved being there around all of it. And I learned a lot of what I know from a bunch of those older union stage hands in Santa Barbara, who are many of who are still up there and are still very good friends of mine.
0: It it sounds like you just always like raise your hand or answer the bell or whatever, you know, when they're looking, Hey, who can do this? And I can, I can, I can. And, you know, you figured it out probably from part great attitude, but part, you know, you figured out how to get paid, right? Like if you want to make money, you yeah. need to be able to do a lot of different things.
1: And it appeared that the more that I knew, uh, the more likely I was to be kept on the clock because the knowledge seemed to translate into hours on the clock and hours yeah. on the clock translated into dollars and dollars translated into paying my rent and feeding myself, you know? So, um, yeah. so that, so that was that. Uh, I, I quickly Well, after several years, I was, I had been going to Santa Barbara City College through all of this. And my plan was to transfer into UC Santa Barbara, but my grades weren't good enough. So I had to, I couldn't get into the UC system. I was spending more time working than studying and it was reflective in my grades, unfortunately. But um, I applied to San Diego State and San Francisco State and Long Beach State all to make to the film departments because I was going to make movies. And um, I got in all of them, and I chose San Diego because of the beach, because I grew up on the beach back east, and I love the beach. And because a little bit of security, my brother had left the county bowl in Santa Barbara, moved to San Diego, and became the talent buyer and production manager for a new promoter in San Diego, this guy, Bill Silva, who opened a company called Bill Silva Presents. And Bill Silva went on and is still in the industry to become one of the bigger independent promoters out there. And he managed Jason Mraz for a long time. And, and um, he, but he still books the Hollywood bowl and, you know, Bill's an amazing guy. And um, so I came to San Diego to go to San Diego state, to, to be in the film department and continued to work shows down here. Cause now my brother was working for Bill and they were booking, all the theater and arena and large club shows in San Diego. So I came down here and was a runner and a production assistant and, um, a lot of union houses. So I couldn't get on the calls as much as I wanted to. And then I found the non-union crew in San Diego and fumbled into that and started doing shows as a stagehand in San Diego, um, with the non-union crews. And they, My brother, it's a bunch of these guys who had the senior non-union guys down here. They teased the heck out of me when I first got here, they called me little Larry because of my brother had was the promoter rep in town and basically their supervisor as it were ish on show days. Uh, But I quickly again, figured out that I'd make the most money if I stayed on the clock all day, how am I going to stay on the clock all day? Well, why don't I run the crew? And within a matter of a couple of years, I was running the crew and all the guys that were teasing me, calling me little Larry were getting their work calls from me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. and I hired all of them cause they were great. And I learned a lot of stuff from them, but it was yeah. sort of funny. We all still laugh about that to this yeah. day. And a lot of those guys are are on tours to this day. But, um, so, uh, yeah, got to San Diego. There was basically a program board on campus at San Diego state. They had a 5,400 seat amphitheater there called the open air theater. I became the student, uh, I became the stage manager there. I, so I provided all the labor calls. I put all the labor calls together, um, for all the shows that came to town. I mean, we were doing Bon Jovi and the black crows and the Eagles and Jimmy Buffett and Tracy Chapman and, you know, real shows. Um, produced by Avalon Attractions at the time was a big promoter um, and they had a promoter rep, but I was the student stage manager, labor provider. So uh, uh, you know, we, I was dealing with working with and meeting a lot of different touring guys. All these different tours would come in year after year. And it was, it was great. And I was in charge of the crews and the stage manager. So I was on the clock all day again on the clock equaled money. Oh, so it, we had you a were,
0: but you were a student going to that school and you were getting paid. I didn't know that's oh, how that works. Yeah. I didn't know that's how that works. Yep. Uh, well,
1: it, not in every, in every situation it doesn't, but there it did the, uh, you know, we were the stagehands. So, it, you know, oh, uh, they paid, we, we got paid through the um, it was called associate we worked for associated students, which was the, the organization on campus that put the events on, uh, but I, I believe Avalon Attractions, the promoter, you know, paid a, associated students for us, and then they paid us, as I it see, were. I see. So, yeah, we, we were employees, taxed employees, but hourly, you know, to time and a half after eight, the whole thing. It was great. We, Interesting. Uh, I was yeah. making decent money for 20 years old, you know. And um, how, how big was that venue? Uh, the open-air theater is see the 4800 or 5200 seats it's still okay. there uh it's called it's been you know corporately branded but it's the open air theater to me yeah always will be and um you know we had a a, a roof uh you know on 2-ton motors the roof would come in we'd rig from the ground and up it would go i i learned how to rig there um became a rigger too
0: um damn you really uh, did learn it all didn't you
1: yeah i i've been a lighting director head electrician, I've been a rigger, I've worked for a sound company, but I don't mix sound. But right. um, I've, I've worked for the promoter, um, for promoters on the promoter side producing shows, I've worked for venues on the venue side, and I, now I tours. So I, I've, without sounding ridiculous, have done a little bit of everything involved in live concerts. But as, I've seen as, all sides
0: of it. As far as your your main gig now as as production manager, I'm sure all of that came in very handy, right? You know, extremely it, handy.
1: I I walk into buildings sometimes and see the promoter. Or I I talk to, to advance them, and they're trying to pull the wool over my eyes on certain fronts or budgetarily or this or that, and I see right through it because yeah, I used know. to try to yeah. do that to the band. Yeah, you know, uh, makes total uh, sense. I, yeah, I think I'm good at my job because I've been the the band the promoter and the building I've seen it from every side yeah and so um, yeah. No, that I makes think sense. you know I, I live by a couple of things but one of one of them is knowledge is power you know the more you know the better off you're going to oh, be so yeah. Um, yeah. well I, I I don't think
0: we're curing cancer here in our industry but I to to produce a show I've seen every side of it top yeah to bottom. yeah So you're going you're going to school and you said you wanted to make films, but you're making a living and you're learning, you know, your craft in in concerts, live events, stage management, production, everything. Um, So, you know, I'm guessing at some point you must have gone like, okay, this education thing is kind of getting in my way of making money. Uh, Did you? Or did you finish?
1: No, I finished. I got my bachelor's. I'll digress. Oh, yeah, I did it. No, I did it. It took me a while, and I'll tell you why. Um, First of all, when I got down to San Diego State, because I was 19 and not paying enough attention like 19-year-olds do or 20-year-olds, whatever, um, the film department was impacted. So I got accepted to the university into the theater department um and what I wasn't guaranteed I was had every intention of taking film classes but I got there and found out I couldn't because it was impacted so I took some film classes but I ended up getting What's my that degree mean, impacted in- impacted means the program is full in my layman's terms the program's full we're gonna sneak a few people in after the fact oh, and
0: I, I and you weren't one so of those you people. could
1: come down and and roll the dice that you're going to be one of those people. And I rolled the dice knowing my brother was here. There was going to be some work working for him and Bill Silva. I see doing shows on the side and I didn't get in. So I, I had some film classes, but I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in design for the theater, scenic design, lighting design, um, even, um, costume design, which was just painful, but it was part of the program. Um, while, like I mentioned to you a little earlier, I met the non-union crews and I started working any non-union event around town as a stagehand. There used to be a gigantic weekend long festival in San Diego called street scene where they would build 20 stages in the streets of downtown San Diego and shut down a 30 square block area and put a hundred thousand people down there. And they'd have major, you know, they'd have everything from local bands up to, you know, national touring acts playing. Um, I did it. I was assigned to a stage and, you know, diff, you know, half a dozen bands a day for six days. Uh, I was there. I was new to San Diego. Uh, they needed somebody to climb the truss and focus the truss. I go, I can do that. I had learned how to do that in Santa Barbara. I climbed up and I, the guy who was the lighting director for the stage, I worked with him very closely for the weekend. And he goes, man, you know, you seem to know what you're doing. You know a lot about lighting. And I said, well, I just came from Santa Barbara. I learned from these stagehands up there. I've been working, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, my name's Perry Leonard. I own a lighting company called Starlight Services here in town. These are my lights. This is my lighting system. You know, I helped them patch the dimmers. I knew how to do that. Yeah. Um, He goes, you want it? You want a job? I said, doing what? And he goes, well, we do shows. He goes, I have tours out and we do one-offs locally He goes. I'll send you out as a lighting guy. And I went, yes, yes, I do. Jesus. Um, so, so I'm in college, I'm working at the amphitheater for the university. They, I also was the stage manager, you know, university contact for the, um, 1500 seat room on the campus called Montezuma hall, where I remember doing green day and jewel and Jason Mraz and all kinds of people as they were coming up guns and roses in Jeez. Montezuma hall for for 1500 people at their outset. Wow. Um, shit like that. You know, a lot of bands who went on to be huge. I remember green day and Montezuma hall pulled up in their tour bus. It was a, it was the short bus, you know, the joke about the short school bus.
0: Yeah, of course. They had
1: taken, they had taken a short school bus and painted the outside of it and, and put beds in it. And their father, one of their dads was the bus driver and that's what they pulled up that's to on the loading hilarious. dock of Montezuma hall. And we laughed at them. Oh, who are these fucking jokers that's in this little That's so world?
0: funny. Oh my God. Green
1: day. What, what the fuck? These guys are never going to be Green day in a short bus. <laughs> Boy, were we wrong, you know? Yeah, I mean, no
0: kidding.
1: No. So, so uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm all over, but Perry yeah, hired awkward. me. I went to work for Starlight. I became a lighting guy. So I'm working for the university doing shows at OAT Montezuma Hall and, sorry, the back door, which was the 500-seat club at the campus. So I was responsible for three staffing venues. and for the three venues. Um, you know, I remember we did, I mean, Guns N' Roses, I think, in 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 the back door for 300 people. I mean, I we did a lot of bands that have become stadium acts. Yeah. You know, since then, um, But I'm working the three venues. I'm playing runner production assistant for my brother and the Bill Silver present shows at the theaters and arenas around town. And I'm working for Starlight Services, going out, being lighting guy for a one off gig at the theater in town or whatever. And I'm going to school. I'm doing it all at the same time. Holy shit. Um, then. Perry Leonard says, okay, you clearly have my system down. You're a good lighting guy. You know what you're doing. I want you to go on the road. I went, go on the road? What what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm going to send you out on a tour, and you're going to be the head electrician, and you're going to put the lighting rig up every day, and there'll be a lighting director, and he's going to run lights for the show. You do what he says. And I said, okay. And the tour was John Denver, which harking back 20 minutes. Weird, yeah, your first show. The the first show my dad ever told me to. So I am up touring with john for oh god i five to eight years somewhere in there and i'll never once i had gotten comfortable enough around john i said to him one day hey uh you know you were the first show i ever saw and he
0: said how old were you i said i was 13 and he went fuck you, <laughs> he, fuck you. <laughs> no Which but how awesome. i don't understand how'd you quit all your other gigs and go on the road how'd that work out or were you done well, school by that time
1: no Holy nope. What shit, I would do. Man, you're crazy. I know. Yeah, it was not yeah. Well, that's <laughs> basically the way I've been since yeah. then, Marcel. Yeah. Un- until COVID hit. This is how I've been. It's that been is nuts. juggling. Nuts. Um, I, ha- I I haven't stopped since college. Honestly, I haven't. And it's been so that's so I, I've always gone a hundred miles an hour, and to go from a hundred miles an hour to zero yeah. has just been oh, you just be painful. Losing it. um I got guys to cover like the university shows for me. Um, and then, you know, I wasn't the only runner or production assistant that worked for my brother. So there were other people who did those jobs while I was gone. And, uh, what I, what I would do was I would go on the road for basically a semester, like six months and take a semester off. And then I'd come back and I would just go to school for a semester and I would not tour for the semester. You know, I was able to work it out with, the owner of the lighting company and say, look, I gotta, I gotta get through this. You know, my, my family wants me to finish. I want to finish. So, you know, what should have taken four years to go to college took about six and a half because I was a semester in class and a semester on the road and then a semester in class and a semester on the road. Um,
0: Jeez.
1: And it was really Jeez. funny because I was getting to my lighting classes and the lighting uh, professor was teaching us how to, you know, hang a lico and pull shutters on a lico and put a gobo in it. And I was out hanging you know, four hundred can park can rigs with fifty lecos on it and all this shit. And I, you know, but were you sort of were you
0: treated like a bit of a rock star in in school? Like when you went into class because they were like, "Holy oh, shit, no. he's out on this big tour N- with John Denver." N- nope,
1: absolutely not. Nope.
0: They knew nope. though, right? No
1: diff- no different. Well, my, my professor would get mad at me because I would get annoyed with him. Cause I'm like, come on, man, you're making this way more difficult than it needs to be. I'm like, let me just show these guys how you, you, you were know, like Rodney
0: Dangerfield just- and back to school, right? Ish, ish. <laughs> and, and that ain't so how me,
1: and, me and his name was Craig Wolf. We butted heads a little bit, but, but, uh, in the end, you know, when all was said and done years after the fact, I ran into him and he goes, you know, I'm really proud of you. You did, you did well for yourself, you know? And yeah. I was like, well, you know, I mean, I learned shit there. Don't get me wrong. Um, so, uh, you know, John Denver turned into, I I lost my job with John Denver when the plane crashed, unfortunately. And I went from being the head electrician. I actually became his lighting director and got to run the show because the LD who had been there for many, many years, um, for, family reasons decided he wanted to get off the road. I had been there for three, four five years. And he said, Hey, I want you to take over for me. And I had never been in LD, but I had run the opening acts and stuff like that. And so yeah. I knew what to do. And, and on local one-offs, I might play LD. Uh, so next thing you know, I was John's lighting director. It, it was, I was, it was phenomenal. It was yeah. just great. And um, that turned into touring with Robert Cray. What was the console back then? Oh, I had a uh, the, the the ninety channel AVO lights, the big huge one. What okay. was I forget what they called it. it? It was the size of a dining room table. Uh, it was huge. I loved yeah, the thing, you yeah. know. And I could run the whole show. John Denver was not a flash and trash kind of show. I could run the whole thing off, you know, six sub faders. Yeah, you know, but yeah. but um, yeah. So uh, an AVO, God, I can't remember. I don't
0: remember um, all the names.
1: But I I ended up touring as a lighting guy with Huey Lewis, uh, Robert Cray. Um, we did some Jimmy Buffett for a while. Um, you know, I was just, you know, head electrician or one of the lighting crew. I wasn't lighting director. Um, and it was it was great. And when I came off the road, I'd work with my brother and the promoter, Bill Silva. Or if I was still in school, I'd work at the amphitheater. And I had sort of started a non-union labor company. So I was getting... Jobs all around town, you know, corporates, privates, shows for promoters. And I was busy, but I I got through it, got my degree. Funny enough, my graduation ceremony, because every year in that amphitheater we talked about, they, this is where the graduation ceremony was. And we would put up a PA and a lighting rig and the kids would walk across the stage. And so for my actual graduation, I was sitting on the stage left wing running lights for my own graduation. I didn't walk. I got paid to graduate.
0: <laughs> oh, Jesus, that's crazy, man. You no, know, which was my choice, you know. But that's um, really funny. That yep. Wild, so man. Did, it blows me away did, that I you were doing all off. those things at the same time and going out on tour. I mean, that's just like, how do you pull that off? I don't know. I'm guessing you didn't, didn't have a girlfriend, any... or certainly not nope. a wife or kids or anything.
1: No, nope, not yet. No, yeah. no, nope. um, nope. and I, I just did it. I mean, the funny thing is, is now at 53, I, I. I juggle multiple projects in a normal year, you know, yeah. there's several band. you know, I have two main clients, you know, the main client I work for is REO Speedwagon. And then yeah. I also do all of Brian Setzer's stuff, whether it's his orchestra shows or the Stray Cats or his Rockabilly Riot band. And so I juggle those. And then the, the guy that manages REO Speedwagon also manages Sammy Hagar and Pat Benatar. So he occasionally will send me out for a weekend with them, uh, because they generally tour, you know, in the, the spring and summer, and so in the winter, they don't keep their staff around. Whereas the other artists I work for generally work mainly year round, which is great,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, so you know, I, I may be, I may, I may spend two weeks on an REO speed wagon bus and then climb off the bus, fly somewhere, and get on a Sammy Hagar bus for a weekend, and then climb off that bus and fly back to REO. And it somehow always works
0: out, right? Like the scheduling somehow works out or.
1: It it does. There are occasional conflicts and I have people um, who will help me. They'll cover me on one job or another. Um, You know, I've, I've got a, after all these years, I've got a, you know, a group of just like we all do. We have our inner circle who we work with and trust and hand things off to and so on and so forth. So, um it's funny i never really thought about it till you said it but as crazy as it was back then juggling projects i'm still doing it
0: now that's uh, 30 years later hey by the way that console that console was called a qm 500 that's right Uh, yeah 500 while i was talking to you i sent a text to steve warren at avo and i said 90 channel memory console from the 80s what was it called and he said qm 500 yeah the thing
1: was massive it was huge i mean front of house between that and the gigantic old audio consoles the analog consoles we took up a big footprint
0: (laughs) yeah you know well it was funny because it used it used to be a war over you know who had the bigger desk uh you know the audio guy or the or the lighting guy and then the whole hog 2 comes out and everybody goes wait a second you know come on man it's too small so.
1: Well now and now all the all the front of house uh, audio consoles the small they're all small and digital yeah. now you know? yeah. it's just really yeah, funny would, the, the f- used to I, I'll never forget there, there used to always be this huge conversation when I was the promoter rep uh, advancing shows. Okay. How big is your front of house? What kind of consoles do you have? Okay. I can only, we're in a theater under a balcony. I only have this much space. Oh, we're never going to fit. And nowadays yeah. it's not an issue anymore because everything's small. It's so much easier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we were just talking about like flip-flopping between the the two different artists and stuff and, and you've got Brian Setzer and, and Ario. So, there's got to be a concern over everybody wanting to go out at the same time next year. I know I was talking to Cosmo about this the other day, cause he's got Aerosmith and, and ACDC and you know, he's like, okay, you know, how's this going to work? Cause of course, I mean, plus everyone's getting up in age now, right? All of these incredible artists are getting up in age. So they're in a big hurry to get back out. And, uh, but yet they don't want to too early because they're a little afraid of the virus and stuff, you know, for good reason. So, um, is that a concern for you that like your two main artists are going to both want to go out at exactly the same time?
1: Yes. It's a huge concern. It's a concern every year. Um, there are some sleepless nights sometimes over it. You know, the, the, the biggest concern is twofold. One worrying about angering the artist, uh, for, for saying, Hey, I'm going to miss something. And, and obviously worrying about angering the managers, you know, um, but I'm not certainly not trying to make anybody angry or make anybody's life difficult. I'm just trying to make a living and feed my family. I've been fortunate. You know, Brian doesn't work. Ario does easily 10 months a year.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, they work a lot,
1: a lot, you know, there's shows every month. I mean, some months could be four shows in a month and some months could, some months could be, Sixteen to twenty in a month. It Jesus. just depends, you know.
0: Yeah. But
1: there's there's work every month, which is why they've been such an amazing bunch of guys to work for. Yeah. Because for fourteen years now, I've worked easily ten months a year for them, and yeah. they're incre- incredible musicians and even better human beings. And we're a total family. Yeah. You know? I, was, um, I was, I was going to say,
0: I, I, I saw you did a, an interview with uh, with Kevin Cronin, the the singer, of course, and, uh, or he did an interview of you, which was kind of cool. Like it was kind of like flipping the table a little bit, right? The artist interviewing the crew guy. And, um, yeah. but I mean, the things that he does in support of, everyone in this industry like I, you know i know he was this i think this particular video was in support of crew nation but also like when we did that red alert thing he was one of the first artists that came forward with a a public service announcement saying support this thing you know just seems like a great guy
1: he is they all, all five of them are they're all super good people and the manager their manager tom is an incredible guy who's who's kept me really busy for a long time um and, um, it's, you know, Kevin calls us, there's, there's, uh, six, seven people on the band bus and there's 10 of us on the crew bus, you know, we're, we're basically 20 people, our organization. Um, and he calls us the brotherhood yeah. and I have spent more time in the last 14 years. You know, this may sound horrible to somebody who might be listening to this, who doesn't know a lot about the industry, but I've spent more time in the last 14 years with those 19 other men than I have with my own family. It's, it is my, it's my other family. It's my road family. And um, I care a lot about them and they care a lot about us. And the band's been trying to help myself and our crew any way possible through the pandemic. And um, they've jumped on board with like, service announcements and I've gone come to them with requests from red alert restart and from Michael Strickland and anything I can do and ask them to do they've happily done um it's they're yeah good people really good people
0: yeah they certainly seem like it yeah yep and so speaking of REO Speedwagon you know I'm a huge uh Ozark fan and and uh I didn't even know it was coming. Like, I, you know, I just happened to watch one of the episodes and I'm like, wait a second. And uh, so tell me about that thing. That was cool. Well, um, Tom, the manager, called me one day.
1: You know, he calls. He'll call me and say, hey, can you call this venue and see if we fit? Like I mentioned earlier, that sort of thing. Or for whatever reason, he may call. And he called and he goes, hey, we're going to do a TV show I need you to get on the phone with these people and get into it with them just to make sure it's going to be okay. And I said, all right. I said, what is it? Is it the tonight show? Is it Ellen DeGeneres? You know, I figured it was, you know, cause the, generally that's the sort of TV that we right, do. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, or, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll film the whole show, but that's a different animal. Um, so he goes, no, he goes, it's this series on Netflix. And he goes, I've never heard of it. That's why I want you to call it's called Ozark. And I, at the time I was already a big fan of the show and was deep into the second season of it when he said it. And I said, you're joking. And he goes, no, I said, have you watched it? And he goes, no, I go, Oh my God, the show is great. It's I, I thought such it was a great. Good show. I, yeah. I loved it from yeah, the first episode where they dropped the body into the vat of oh acid after shooting him. Yeah. You know, I was like, how could you not be hooked immediately? It's such you know, so, a good show. Uh, but, um, so, uh, Jason Bateman, as it turned out, who's the lead actor yeah. of on the show. I can't think of – what what's his name? Marty? No. Yeah, no, Marty. Marty, Marty yeah, yeah, Marty. He's an REO fan, and apparently there are some other people, producers of the show, who are REO fans as well. So they decided they wanted REO to play on the show, and they wrote them into the storyline. Um, I didn't know any of this. I called up. I said, hey, I'm the band's production manager, and they go, oh, yeah, well, basically, we want to do an REO Speedwagon concert on the show. And it's and I'm like, okay, why? You know, just curious. And they said, well, it's part of the storyline. I said, all right, fine, whatever. Um, but they said, we want you to bring all your gear, and we want it to be as real as possible. We don't want this to be cheesy. We want it to be an REO Speedwagon show. Uh, you know, so then we, we went from there to work it out. I mean, you know, it turned out they were going to do it outside. So, you know, we, uh, the need for the proper lighting rig made no sense. Yeah, um, it was during the day. The, right? right. Correct. Yeah. It was during the day. And then they said, Oh, well, we're going to do it on the boat in the middle of a lake. And I'm like, "What? really? Okay. Well, that's interesting and different. All right. We'll figure it out. Well, at the end of the day, they played on top of the casino riverboat in the storyline, which was, docked at shore but they yeah. were the initial plan was to put the boat in the middle of the lake and surround it with people on boats and they were going to play a concert for people in boats and the producers decided to change their mind so um, you know I, I, we went we brought our truck it is all our backline we set our monitor rig up for the playback of the one song they wanted us to do or them to do not did, us. did they play um, live no they played the track yeah uh, they played the track yeah and uh, uh, and and we did it. It was just you know the the roof of the boat was thirty two by twenty four. It, was, it tiny, was tiny. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I remember yeah, that. We,
1: yeah, we usually fit on a sixty by forty. I said, look, we can do this, but it, we're you know they wanted me to put the whole setup. We have some you know risers and runways and stuff, which we brought it all, but it wouldn't fit. So you know, I worked with the producers and the artistic director and whatever, and we came up with a game plan. i sort of, you know, I don't know if you remember, but there was just a a self climbing roof with a shade cloth over the top of it. That was my, my idea. I'm like, well, they can't bake in the sun. You could hang some lights off the structure. Why don't you just do something like that? I found them, you know, they film in, in the Atlanta area, just outside Atlanta. So I, um, Helped them find a vendor in the Atlanta area who brought the trussing out. And I found, I got them to hire the local, uh, a local non-union labor company who was able to come out and help us unload the truck. They just, they didn't, they didn't understand that, that, you know, I'm like, no, nah, I need like 14 guys to dump our truck. Our truck is full. They're like, yeah, but you're not using everything. Can't you just take out what you need? I'm like, no, it's all, <laughs> yeah, it's all in perfect order. The truck. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in yeah, perfect right. order right at a, the
0: back sitting there. Yeah, no problem. Yeah.
1: So it, it, it was, it, it wasn't, it, 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 was, it wasn't hard. It was just explaining to them the reality of the matter. Cause yeah. you know, television and, and they're not rock and roll similar, people. But, di- yeah. but different. F- fortunately one guy on their staff and I can't remember what position he was, was a former rock and roll guy. Oh. And he, he jumped in. He, we, he and I spoke the same language and he helped, push everything over the over the top he became so the interpreter we <laughs> exactly flat out
0: yeah
1: flat out so we we did it you know we went in in the morning uh we loaded in actually we i managed to get us we loaded in the day before yeah and then the band came in the day of and they did a little rehearsal and then they filmed it and um, that's so cool there, there it was yeah but it was a secret they asked us not to tell anybody oh so we couldn't so when it came out Oh my God, my phone, my email, all of ours, everybody's phones just blew up because it was May. We were a month into the pandemic and everybody was home watching TV. Yeah. So, so they, uh, time for me to fly the song they sang,
0: yeah.
1: uh, it, it had, after the airing, they, the download of the song on iTunes, the numbers were astronomical. Oh, I it just imagine. blew.
0: Yeah.
1: It blew them through the roof. I I don't know how that translates into money, but as far as downloads go, it was unbelievable. I I remember saying to the manager, I said, Tom, you have no idea the exposure that this is going to give the band. A lot of people watch this show, and that was before COVID. And just crossing a
0: bit of an age gap, too. Like even Kevin on that interview that he did with you, he said that it was the very first time that he was like a, a superstar to both his wife and his daughter.
1: Yep. Yeah. And his sons as well. Yeah. Yep, yeah. That's exactly right. So yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was, it was, you know, we, we dumped the truck in a parking lot and pushed a quarter mile to get to the top of the boat. It was, there wasn't any loading dock. It was less than ideal, but it wasn't, it was fine. And that they, they were super nice people and, and uh that yeah, was neat. You know, I mean, we watched them film the scene. Um you know, Marty got, I don't know, Marty got kidnapped from the concert and yeah. they filmed all that right in front of everybody. I mean, the, the craziest part is, and I'm a huge Ozark fan, is the day we loaded in and the next day that we filmed, the day we loaded in was the day that I left REO, to harking back to our story a few minutes ago, to fly to Europe to start the Stray Cats tour. So I did all the advance work on it and didn't get to go. Uh, it's one of the, it's one, sucks. I missed it. Yeah. That's, I wasn't uh, physically on site. Um, so, but our crew went and, uh, they did an awesome job. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I unfortunately didn't get to go. I did all, uh, I did, it, it sucks, was quite man. a bit of advanced work. Yeah, I know. But you know, so I flew Sudie to calls. Europe and did the first stray cats tour in 20 years, went around the world with that,
0: which was, which was also was, very cool.
1: That was good. Yeah. That was cool too. Yeah. 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 No. Um,
0: so you do some work with sound image too, right? I do. Um, I don't know if you still do, but
1: yeah. So, well, right at the moment. No. Um, (laughs) well, if I go backwards, just a tiny bit, I, I told you I was working for the lighting company after college. Um, I became, uh, I was touring, I was doing all the shows locally. And then I graduated from college and during my senior year of college, um, the university was building an arena on campus and since I had been the student stage manager production guy I didn't design the building but I I was asked for my input into certain things regarding productions that would happen in the building power dressing rooms load in truck and bus parking shore power stuff like that so as a as a student I had input into the design some input into the design of what came to be Cox Arena, which is now Viejas Arena, oh, they renamed okay. it. Um, where the San Diego State, the Aztecs basketball team plays. It's on the campus of the university, and they do tons of shows in there. Um, so right out of college, they hired me to become the in-house production manager. So I graduated uh, and started working full-time immediately for the university. And for the first eight months Cox Arena was open, I was the in-house production manager production slash operations manager. Um, so I would work with the promoters when they came in to do shows, whether it was Fleetwood Mac or Van Halen or whoever, but I was also responsible for turning the building from, okay, tonight it's a concert set up. Tomorrow's a basketball game. We tear the stage down, put the basketball floor down oh. or turn it into a, a, a convention space, trade show space, whatever. I did that for eight months and it was great. And then I got a phone call from a guy who said, I work for this company called universal concerts. We're breaking ground on a 20,000 seat amphitheater in Chula Vista, which is right on the uh, San Diego Tijuana border. Um, would you like to come work here with us? And I, I said, yes, it was a, a pay increase and I didn't have to flip the building from concert to trade show to basketball. I was just going to be a concert production manager, promote a rep. Cool. So I jumped at the opportunity. So Um, That guy's name was John Martin, who I'm still real good friends with. He had been Van Halen's tour manager forever. He decided to get off the road, became the general manager of the facility. And next thing you know, I was working for Universal Concerts. Um, The plans were drawn up. I got down to the site and it was flat dirt and we were opening in like five or six months. So I was there for the entire construction process and got to throw my two cents in there. There was no shore power on the original plans. There was no ladder to get into the rigging grid. The The contractor thought we were going to pull a scissor lift on stage and rig from a snorkel lift every show, which I quickly explained to him yeah. was going to be impossible when Kiss rolled in with 20 trucks. You know, yeah. um, there was one 400 amp disconnect to power on stage and the, and the contractors thought that was enough. Again, when Kiss comes with 20 trucks in, in the parkhand days, as it was still some park days ish, Uh, we opened in 99. I think it was, um, I said, it's not going to fly. So I had to get them to add power. There was no kitchen in the original plans backstage. So we talked them into building a full blown kitchen for the caterers and so on and so forth. So I helped open the building and I was the in-house production guy there for the first five years it was open. Um, sound image through, through going back to sound image, uh, I hired them to provide the delay sound system for the lawn. Additionally, in any of the shows that we produced, which weren't carrying audio with them, I would hire Sound Image to bring an audio package in. And the lighting company, Starlight Services, that I used to work for and tour with, that's who I would hire if I needed to provide a lighting rig. Right. Um, uh, Also, all the years I toured with Starlight, their shop was in the back of the old Sound Image building. So a lot of tours that I was out on as a lighting guy, Sound Image was the audio vendor. And I toured uh, with like on John Denver, for example, and on Robert Cray with Dave Shadone, who's the owner of Sound Image. He was still touring and doing monitors in those days. Uh So I had been around Sound Image in one uh, capacity or another for a long time. Um, I finally left Coors Amphitheater, the shed that I helped build in, uh, down in Chula Vista after five years, I decided it was time to go as much as I didn't want to. uh, There was some conflict with some people I was working with to make a long story short. And I decided to go and I didn't know where I was going, but I knew I couldn't stay there any longer as much as I wanted to. And, I got a phone call basically from Dave Shadone, who owns sound image. And he said, Hey, I heard you left the amphitheater. Is that true? And I said, I did. And he goes, well, what are you going to do? And I said, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure. And he said, well, your desk is waiting for you. Come to work tomorrow. I wow. go, are you serious? Are you serious? I had toured with him and known him for 15 years at least, you know? And um, he goes, yeah, he goes, I could use you. So I went in the sound image pretty much the next day. And well, that's not exactly true. I left the amphitheater and I went into business with a guy who owned a backline company in town. This guy, Mike Apodaca, who's still down here. He's an independent guy, owns his own backline company and rents to all the shows that come into town that need backline. And I bought a piece of his company and helped him run his backline company straight out of the amphitheater. Um, at which point you called me and said, did you really leave? I said, yeah. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm at, I'm working with Michael. And he goes, well, what did you do that for? Why didn't you come work for me? And I said, I didn't even know that was a possibility, Dave. So I worked for the backline company. Now I'm in backline all of a sudden after being a lighting guy and a promoter rep for many years <laughs> and a production manager and a yeah. stage hand and a stage manager. Now all of a sudden I'm learning backline. Yeah. I mean, really learning backline. Um, it, it worked we just didn't make enough money to sustain both of our families. So he bought, I bought into his company. He bought me out. And at that point, Dave said, okay, you're not working for Michael. I said, no, he goes, your desk is waiting, come to work. And at that point I went to work for sound image. I had no idea what I was going to do. I went over to sound image. They set me up an office and I was, I got into touring support, um, helping sell tours, staff tours, uh, and account rep tours, you know, whether yeah. it was, you know, uh, whoever was going out, you know, uh, uh, Robert Cray is going out for six months. He needs these desks and this many wedges and two guys, whatever I would, you know, bid it out, hire the guys from out of the sta- the shop, work out, you know, the logistics of the truck, come into the shop to pick the gear up and then, you know, attend to it. You know, if the client called from the road, I would be there for their needs. Right. Um, did that for, for many years. Um, Ross, Riddo and Dave own sound image. My office was right next to theirs. Incredible guys. They took me in and I started learning audio. Um, all of a sudden now I'm an audio guy. I'm not mixing, but I'm working for a company crazy. and they, it's a great company. Dave's an amazing guy. Ross was the greatest guy on the world who passed from cancer years ago, unfortunately. Um, and I, I I was doing that for quite a while. The company just kept bigger and bigger, and there was no, there was plenty of work for everybody. Yeah. So I was sitting in my office one day, and Jim Douglas, who also subsequently has passed away, who was the director of touring, and he had come from the Electro Tech days, and he was a industry icon, one of the original touring audio guys. Mm-hmm. I tour with his son Marcus now on the straight caps and all the Brian Setzer stuff. Marcus is, is the monitor engineer. So generations of people I've worked with, Um, but Jim Douglas, Eric Clapton was a client of sound images. Um, He was doing his second 2007 crossroads guitar festival in Chicago, which was his fundraiser for his uh, rehab facility in Antigua, I believe it is. And, he invites guitar players to play all his favorite guitar players. So the show was in a stadium for 50,000 people and it was Clapton and Jeff Beck and Santana and Los Lobos and Robert Cray and John Mayer and, and uh, you name it, Cheryl Crow, Vince Gill. If they played guitar, they were there, Albert Lee and so on and so forth. Um, I walked into Jim Douglas's office and said, Jim, I want to go do Crossroads. Now I don't do shows for sound image. I sell shows and, staff shows and support tours. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I want to stand on stage and watch Clapton play with Jeff Beck and Santana and all these other people, you know, and you don't have to pay me. I'm I'm just, you know, just get me a hotel room and send me down with a crew. I'll be an extra crew guy. And he said, okay. So I flew to, and it was funny because all the texts that were down there who I had toured with some and who I have been putting on tours were like, I walked doing in for loading and they're like, "What are you doing here? You're your management," as yeah. it were. And I'm like, "Yeah, well, don't forget where I came from. I've been in many trucks and on many stages too, you know." Yeah. Um and that and having become an office sort of person, I really missed uh touching equipment, as yeah. it were.
0: Yeah.
1: Um but I had got married, I had kids, I was trying to be home and be a dad at the same time. Um so I went and did the show I worked my rear end off. It was unbelievable. And the guy who was stage managing the show was a guy named Tim Rosner. Um, We ended up putting a rotating stage on stage, uh, a turntable stage, which funny enough was my idea that I, my brother was Clapton's tour accountant at the time. And I said, Larry, they, they had done two stages side by side the previous time they had done the event in Dallas, Texas. And they didn't want to spend the money to put two stages side by side, A and B. And I said, my brother was saying, yeah, they're trying to figure out what to do. And I said to him, get a turntable. And he said, well, what's a turntable? I said, a rotating stage with a wall down the middle of it. You have an A side and a B side. Artist A is playing facing the audience while you're loading artist B onto the back of it. When they're done, you push a button and you spin it. It's motorized. (laughs) And then you spin it. And then you spin it back. And he goes, that's a great idea. He called Mick double who was Eric Clapton's production manager Mick and my brother called me and said Mick said tell me about this thing which shocked me because Mick had been on the road forever and my brother and they weren't familiar with it but I had been using them every Christmas in San Diego we did this big Christmas show called jingle ball jingle bells yeah. jingle bell jingle, jingle, jingle ball, ball. jingle ball jingle Dringo Ball, yeah. yeah. And every year it was like one year we had John Mellencamp and Def Leppard and Melissa Etheridge. You know, it was multiple bands. And I would use a turntable to keep the show flowing. No set changes. It was nonstop music for three hours straight. You know, with the minute it took to to spin the table. Um, so I explained it to to uh, Mick and my brother. They loved the idea. Uh, and Tim Rosner was on the phone. And we went out and I got him a turntable from Gallagher Staging at the time. Uh, well, actually it, it was, I think it was accurate. Joe Gallagher, who I love to death. I, do you know Joe Gallagher? Station? I do. Yeah, of course. Joe, uh, Joe's great. I love yeah. Joe. He, uh, I, I got a turntable from him, his son, Joey came. And I, in addition to being one of the patch guys for sound image at crossroads, I sort of became the turntable tech with Joey because Rosner goes, I may need you to help me. Finagle the spinning of this. So I ended up. Tim basically stage managed side A of the table, and I kind of stage managed side B. You know, so we could keep it moving. And at the end of the three days, the three the three days of work, it was a two. uh, See, we did a load in, a rehearsal day, a show day, and a loadout. I think it was. But anyways, I I was everywhere. I worked my ass off and was happy. I was around all these incredible guitar players. Tim Rosner walked up to me on the loading dock and said during loadout and he goes, Hey, do you want to go on the road? And I said, no, I've done that. I'm working for sound image. I got a job. I just came to do this one show cause I wanted to be a part of it. And he said, well, I, he goes, I've worked for REO Speedwagon in the eighties, seventies, eighties, whatever um, their guy just abruptly their production guy abruptly quit. He quit and left to go work for rascal flats. Um, and the band had called Tim to fill in because the guy who had done it left pretty quickly. You know, it was, they didn't know it was coming, I guess. Wow. Um, Tim said to me, they're looking for a production manager. I don't want to do it. I have projects I'm involved with, but they've asked me to try to find somebody. I think you'd be perfect. And I said, I'm not interested. Married, got a job. Um, and he, He says, well, you worked hard on this project. It was, thanks for your help. And I said, yep, great. Good to see you. And I knew him because he used to come into the amphitheater, either the amphitheaters or the arena I worked in with different acts as the touring production manager. Um, So when I walked, you know, when we start, when we got involved with Crossroads together, it was sort of weird. We had never worked together. We had worked with each other, but not together. So it was, uh, it was cool. It was a good experience. Anyways, a few weeks after Crossroads, he calls me and he goes, look, I'm still trying to find a guy for REO. Uh, They've got five shows on the West Coast and five shows in the Midwest. Can you please just go cover the five shows on the West Coast so I don't have to fly out there? It doesn't fit into my schedule. So I said, okay, what the hell? I'll go do five shows. It was like Reno, LA, Vegas, you know, it was right outside my back door. Cause I live in San Diego. Um, at the, after the first four shows, we had a day off in Reno. I was sitting by the pool in Reno. Kevin Cronin came walking out to the pool and walked over to me and said, sat down and we started talking. And he basically said, you know, we've all watched you go for the last four shows. The crew seems to like you. Things have certainly been in order. Everything's been on time. And, uh, you clearly have a handle on things and how'd you like to stick around and work for us? And I said, no, no, I'm just filling in for Tim. He's finding you a guy. And he goes, no, I want you to do it. And I said, well, I have a job at sound image and, and um, I'm married and this, that, the next thing I, 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 I was shocked to be honest yeah, with you. I wasn't yeah. expecting it. Yeah. So long and short of it, I went home. I talked to my wife of the time and said, what do you think? Um, she said, Yeah, if you want to do it, you should do it. And so I went on the road with REO, but you'll laugh at me. But I continued to work for Sound Image.
0: Oh my god, I worked out,
1: I worked out a deal with Dave Shadone that you know, when the band went on the road, uh, I would just leave my desk and he wouldn't pay me, and then I'd come back. And of course, if Sound Image needed me to do something from the road, I could. You know, get into the computer system and the inventory system from from remotely, and and certainly answer the phone and talk to clients or whatever. So, for several years, I continued to work for Sound Image and tour with R.E.O. Speedwagon. That is wild.
0: That's unreal. Yep. And
1: and then I was on a break from R.E.O. at my desk one day, and uh, the director of touring, who's still there now, his name is Mike Sprague and Sprague, who's an amazing guy, and he. He was Aerosmith's monitor engineer forever, and Van Halen, and he he was on the road forever. Um, he took over for Jim Douglas when Jim passed. One day, I Jim I, Mike yells at me from across the hall through the wall. Hey, you want to go on the road with Brian Setzer? And I went, what? He goes, you want to go on the road with Brian Setzer? They're they're looking for a production guy. Sound Image had been Brian's audio vendor for many years. The guy who had done it had left. I don't remember if he quit or got fired. I have no idea, but I I thought he was joking. I went, yeah, I do. He goes, okay, you have a meeting on Tuesday with the manager. And it just turned out Brian's managers are based out of San Diego. They're in Encinitas. Hmm. So I drove over to the office. I walked in to meet with the two managers and the tour manager and the tour manager was a guy named Ken Denson, who I had worked with at, Uh, with Bill Silver Presents and at Cox Arena over the years. So I knew him and didn't realize he had left the arena to go back on the road as a tour manager. And so I got the job. So next thing you know, I'm touring with REO. I'm touring with Brian Setzer, and I'm working at Sound
0: Image. (laughs) (laughs) This is a really fucking twisted pattern for you, isn't it? It it, it is. And 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 it's continued. Oh yeah, it's crazy. God. And so,
1: so I still have an office at sound image admittedly in the last two years between Brian and REO, I've hardly been there. Um, but I am still an employee and Dave is, is crazy is amazing. And Ralph and Dave and Shannon and Sprague and everybody there is my, they're my homework family and yeah. I love them all to death. And, yeah. um, and i i have subsequently t- brought um, sound image does audio all we carry sound image audio gear with REO and we carry oh, that's it with cool. brian
0: that's cool uh, yeah
1: which is cool and um yeah I, it
0: sounds like it I, sounds like you're very loyal you know i'm i'm definitely hearing that like i'm hearing two things and and you know god forbid young people listen to this they should pick up two things you know one that loyalty matters but two and more importantly you know work like you're auditioning like work your ass off do really good things cuz you're getting offered jobs left and right and it's not you know not that you're ugly but it's not because you're beautiful it's not because of anything other than the fact that you work really hard and i think they believe that you know you're reliable and they can count on you and that's why you keep getting offered jobs right
1: that's per- precisely right and for yeah. if there is a young person listening you know uh there's a couple of things uh the, the the one thing my father told me that I tell my kids and it's the one thing I live by in regards to business is it's not what you know, it's who you know, you
0: yeah, know, yeah, um, and I true.
1: firmly believe that and I firmly believe that I've gotten a lot of work because of that. But I also believe that um, hard work is is essential and hard work gets noticed and hard work pays off and turns into other jobs in it one thousand percent has been the case for me. Oh yeah. I have con- continued to get jobs because I work my ass off. I'm tireless. I'm I'm it's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't I don't know where it came from, how I got this way. I just don't know any other way to be I just I'm not gonna go do something half assed.
0: I'm sure you it's know? your dad or your mom or whatever. Most people, you know, it's not by accident. It usually comes from somewhere and I'm the same way by the way. You know, I, I wanna work twice as hard as the rest of the people around me. And in doing so, either I'm going to be more successful or I'm going to get more jobs or whatever the, the outcome is going to be. But you know, I just feel really compelled to work harder than the people around me. And I always have, and you know, I didn't grow up with any advantages. I created them by working really hard. Right. And you're doing the exact same thing, you know? So I've had a few people go,
1: yeah, I get it. I'm with you all the way. I've had a couple of guys go, you know, how, how do you, you you got another tour, you know, or now you're working for him. And I'm like, and and they struggle to find work. Well, they are. Some of these are people, some people I tour with who they do their job on the road, but they do uh, ish less than maybe they should. And I think that gets no noticed, you know, and it could be the difference between getting a job and not. I mean, I, 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 there's nothing I won't do. And I don't, I would never expect anybody that works with me to do something I wouldn't do. I mean, I still climb in the back of the truck every day. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I, I do load in and I do load out and then I go set up the office and become the paper pusher part of the guy. I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, I, I, prefer to be on stage than in the office, but I also figured out being the production manager keeps me on the clock all day and, and pays better than some of the other jobs. It also comes with an incredible amount of responsibility. I mean, you know, like all production managers, you know, where it it falls on us. It's very simple for the manager of the band to, when something goes wrong, they're not running to the guitar tech necessarily. Uh, It's me, you know, so it, it's pressure, but it's part of it. and, knock on wood uh i've done thousands of shows and never had a a major problem yeah so no um, i mean i i I commend
0: you on on your uh your character and your just your whole attitude towards work and stuff because it's obvious i mean when you know when you're never out of work well i could go both ways when you work hard you'll never be out of work but when you're never out of work it obviously says that you've done something right you know you you are taking good care of people and and you're doing the right thing. So I, I got this, this, uh, like little list of questions. I like to ask most people who come on. And, uh, so I just want to go through a few quick questions with you. So first, what's the best piece of advice you've ever given or received?
1: Well, I, I guess I jumped the gun, but it's not, it's what I just said. It's not what, you know, it's who, you know, I just firmly believe that, that, um, you know, you're, you're going to get, it may not be tomorrow. It may not even be this year, but something from a relationship you've made at some point could, could come back and help you in the long run. Happened to me very recently
0: happened to me very, very recently. There's a, a friend that I made through some of the things I'm doing, including my weekly zoom call thing that I do that this friend got to know me through listening to me and then called me out of the blue and said, I have an opportunity for you. And I was like, "Wow, that's really cool." Um, Yep, I got got called.
1: Sorry, not to interrupt. I got called two days ago and offered a potential job on New Year's Eve this year. Believe it or not, my first job offer this year. But it's from uh, it's from another guy on one of the crews I work with. Who it's a it's a private corporate kind of thing. But he has been he's getting vetted for the job and wants to bring me in on it again. I never would have gotten it if I didn't know Paul. So it's not done yet. It may not happen, but if it does, there you go. It's not what yeah. you know, it's who you know.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I always like to say that in our industry, we're we're so fortunate for those moments, and I might be giving it away here, but like what you were telling me about driving around with Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and your Camaro, what's your biggest career pinch me moment? <sighs> You're, you know, wow. you're, you're, let's say you're on your deathbed 50 years from now. And uh, yeah. somebody goes, you know, tell me an amazing story. What would it be? Oh,
1: boy, that's tough. I've, I've gotten to see and do some, some pretty cool things. Um, my
0: goodness. Ah. uh, uh. Is an easy question. Come on, Michael.
1: (laughs) Well, this one, because there's a couple, but this one, this one particular, because of my, my work in the music industry, um, I'm a huge sports fan and I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but I'll try to be brief. I'm a huge sports fan and I'm a huge new England sports fan. I grew up in new England, you know, all the Boston teams. I love the Red Sox for the world series in 2013, REO Speedwagon has They're big sports fans as well. They have some really great contacts in Major League Baseball. And to make a long story short, the guitar player uh, Dave Amato, the guitar player Barrio, who's from Framingham, Mass, is a big Red Sox fan too. We we got all access laminates to the World Series. Dave and I and got to go. Oh yeah, and we got to go on the field in St. Louis and and free tickets to the game too through Major League Baseball. Um, we got to go on the field before the games and after the games um, and sat in the ML major league baseball television box in St. Louis for a couple of games with Harold Reynolds. Oh, so, and so it wasn't Ken, just one Ken game. Eight. It
0: was all of them. Uh, well, we went to
1: uh, four five and six. Um, it's, it's a long story. I won't bore you with the details. And they, but when they won game six in Boston, we flew from St. Louis back to Boston. When they won game six in Boston, Uh, The game ended and the players were celebrating on the mound. And I looked at Dave, the guitar player. I said, let's go. He goes, where? I go down there on the field. And he goes, what are you talking about? I go, well, we were on the field before the game and all those uh, media people that are running out on the field right now have the same pass we have. Let's go. He goes, I'm not going down there. I go, good. You stay here. I'll wave to you. And long and short of it, we, we went, we were on the field. And when the Red Sox got handed the championship trophy from the commissioner, of baseball, Dave and I were standing shoulder to shoulder with the players on the field. I have photos. You're
0: in the shot. <laughs> That's we're hilarious. in the shot,
1: flat up. And <laughs> then after that, uh, we, with the people in baseball, we know without name dropping, they they said, "Hey, come to the party." And we went. What party? They said, "Come with us." And we walked through the third base dugout in Fenway, through the concourse, and these two doors open and we walked into a bar which is attached to Fenway park. I can't think of the name of it. Um, we're in the bar with all the broadcasters from MLB TV. Uh, the dropkick Murphys are setting up their gear on stage to play. It's open bar. We're having beers and we're like, oh, okay, well, we just celebrated on the field with the players. This was awesome. Okay. Now we're having a free beer, whatever. And then all of a sudden the entire Red Sox team with the trophy comes walking in, we were in the post-game Red Sox party.
0: That is where we, so and we, cool.
1: And we partied in there till six in the morning um, with the players shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm with David Ortiz and Dustin Pedroia and and John, John Lackey and all the players smoking cigars and drinking and partying. And we left because Dave and I had 9am flights back to the West coast. So we, (laughs) Dave doesn't drink, but I do. And I was celebrating the world series with my favorite team. So, you know, had a few beers and, well, we left at 6 a.m., ran to the hotel, took a quick shower, grabbed our bags. I got on the plane. I was still drunk, you know, <laughs> looking at the pictures in my phone
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> as we flew back to the West
1: Coast. So 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 that was cool. Um, you know, the, the other one, I guess, really, if you want to go stay. And, and that never would have happened if it wasn't for my time in the industry. Um, I've had the opportunity to go out on stage um, once or twice and play air guitar with the band, which is silly, but who, who does that? You know yeah. what I mean? So
0: that, that's, that that's was really short. cool. That's with Ario.
1: Yeah. With Aria. Well, actually with Ario and sticks, um, both bands on stage at the same time, we had done a tour and the whole crew, we came out one night, everybody with guitars. They, they wrote a song. It was the can't stop Rockin tour. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Shaw and Kevin wrote a song called can't stop rocking, which they closed the show with every night. Both bands would play it. Oh. So a bunch of us went out and played with them. Or supposedly played. That was silly but fun. Um,
0: Yeah, that's cool. um,
1: You know, it's it's and then you know, I mean, I I toured with Van Morrison for a while and hardly ever spoke to the guy while I worked for him. But you know, standing on the side of the stage watching Van Morrison in front of fifty thousand people in the pouring rain in Sweden was mind blowing. You know, just like very cool. you know last summer in 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 France, in front of fifty thousand people with the stray cats watching fifty thousand people lose their minds uh you know sometimes oh with uh Graham Nash standing next to me on the
0: side of the stage because
1: he had played before us shit like that yeah. I, you know
0: um no, there's so many crazy. of those so many of those moments yep. that that stuff's so cool um uh, who who was or is your greatest influence in in your career?
1: Well, I, yeah, I I was thinking back about that one, but, um, I would, I guess I'd say my brother, you know, I mean, if it wasn't for him going to the West coast and getting involved, I wouldn't have gotten involved. And I've, you know, I've never really second guessed my career choice. I mean, I really wanted to make movies and just, it just, I fell into this whole music business thing and it mushroomed. um, if he hadn't gotten involved back at his college, I never would have gotten involved. So I would yeah. definitely say he—he he was a large-scale influence, and um, he—you know—he's presented me many working opportunities. But I have also, through hard work and perseverance, gotten yeah. no. You've carried most, most of my stuff on my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: that's obvious. Speaking speaking of uh, what you just said about the the film thing and stuff again, do you do you have regrets on that?
1: Uh, somewhat. Yes. You know, living in a tour bus on the road, not seeing your family as we all know how it works. Um, It's hard. It's, it's tough, you know, uh, you know, I wanted to make feature films. So, you know, if I was working on, you know, the next star Wars, I might be all over the world anyways. Um, then again, I go do, you know, Ellen DeGeneres or the tonight show or whatever, every year. And I look at the guys who work there who are union salaried, you know, benefited, go to work and go home every night and go, see, I could have done something like that if I had gotten into the television side of it. So, yeah. you know, yes and no, yeah. yes and no. Um, I, I also thought, I thought many times over the years, God, this is a tough way to make a living, but I, I enjoy it and I'm good at it. And I don't know how to do anything else but people always want to be entertained and they're always going to want to be entertained and I'll never have a problem finding work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure.
1: Until a pandemic hits. Right. You know, I mean, uh, this has just been mind blowing to to have nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, but no, I mean, yes and no. I still, I, I also will say this when, when we do, when they, when access TV comes out and they film the band, the, the whole show, which seems to happen every couple of years I, i'm I'm always blown away by how many people are involved in a film shoot and how few of us are involved in producing a show yeah. you know there's six people doing what i in TV doing what I do on my own yeah um but yeah but um yeah some some regrets, but it is what it is here yeah. we are it's too late to change now
0: you know <laughs> do you ever um you know one one thing I love in our industry is is that people who have been doing it a long time seem to love to get involved in teaching younger people or, um, you know, mentoring them or whatever it is. Like I know some people who went to theater school, will go back to that school and teach a class or whatever. Do you get involved in any kind of those things or charities or anything like that?
1: Um, A little bit, maybe not as much as I'd like to, but um, one of the guys, the guy who was the operations manager down at Coors Amphitheater, the shed that we opened up and ran, um, he is still does production work. Uh, He has his own small production company, but he's, he became many years ago, a teacher, a professor at San Diego state in the theater department where I actually got my degree from. Um, He it teaches a production class amongst stage management, some other classes. So every couple of years he has me come in and I talk to the students about touring. Cause you know, he's sort of gears it more towards production for theater, but he brings me in every couple of years and I talk to the students about, you know, life on the road and touring and, cool. and so on and so forth. So, so I have done that. Um, Really, that's about it. But, um, you know,
0: well, and I'm sure that's one, I'm sure that's amazing. I'm sure that's like probably feels really good for you. And, you know, I, I love when people give a damn what I have to say. I always think that's pretty awesome. I
1: thought it was cool. I, I one one thing out of the pandemic I have figured out, like I'm sure we all have and, and a lot of it I've figured through Michael Strickland, who I didn't know before this, but I certainly know now and I've done everything and anything I can to help the guy. I think he's a hero for what he's trying to do for our industry. Um, Is that, you know, we, we have, nobody knew we were out here, even though we're this massive industry with lots of people working in it, that makes tons of money. You know, the politicians doesn't even know we were here. So I out of this pandemic would like to somehow, and I think Michael took a huge step in doing it by being in front of the Senate hearing the other day, but yeah, they need, the world, the, the the politicians need to know we're out here. So if something like this happens again, and it also makes you think about, I'd somehow like to help make the industry better prepared for this in the future and, and help younger people who want to get in the industry so they're better prepared if something like this happens again. How do you do that? I have no idea. Yeah. But I I feel like there's a you know we're getting older. There's a new wave coming in, and there's no reason that they shouldn't be better.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it, it's hard. It, it you know, like I I don't know if you know, but I I was the one who kind of started this this red alert restart thing over here in uh, in North America, and. Um, You know, it was really fun. It was amazing. It was really hard work. Very rewarding to do it on the September 1st thing that we did where we lit like 3,000 buildings across the country and venues and all kinds of things, the Empire State Building. And uh, But what happened after that is you started to see a lot of people who wanted help, but less people who wanted to help. And... So then you're sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm putting all this work and effort in and, and you know, everyone's kind of got busy with their own lives again. And and I'm not getting the same amount of energy from people. So what I learned is that basically charities and helping and those types of things, unless you're doing it all by yourself, like like Strickland is for the most part, right? Um, unless you're doing it all by yourself, it's it's really difficult to get people on the same wavelength as you. And it's certainly something that I've struggled with a bit. And, and uh, you know, and then I worry that what happens when people go back to work, when COVID ends, God forbid, and people are back to their normal lives, they'll forget all about the fact that we still need to take care of this. Because that was the long-term vision of We Make Events is to create structure and an umbrella so that we can't have this happen this way again. We won't be forgotten and ignored again in the future, Right. But right. uh, well,
1: I, 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 I hear you. It's, it's, and I, I, I fear exactly what you say. Once everybody goes back to work, it'll go to the wayside. But it 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 it, it can't and yeah, it shouldn't. Yeah. And, and again, I don't I don't even begin to know how to do something like this. But yeah, uh, it's been pretty sobering finding out how inconsequential we all are in the eyes of the world. You know, we don't rate with a restaurant owner. You know, it's yeah. like fucking really.
0: Yeah, you know. No, it's so crazy.
1: No, no disrespect, no disrespect to the rest no, of them. No, they work hard too. I, I get. It.
0: No, but um, no. You're, yeah, so you're exactly right. I mean, it, it's. It, I don't know if it's just that out of sight, out of mind, or what, but it just seems like, like even when I talk to friends of mine who aren't in the business. And they go hey how's things going and i'm like yeah you know it's pretty miserable really you know like i've got a i've got this great thing but you know no customers right now the whole world's kind of stopped in our industry and and they're like what you know so they most people don't really get the fact that when there's no shows there's a whole ecosystem behind that that is now completely benched you know we're all like gone and uh and you know, it's a big ecosystem, you know, as as Michael always mentions, it's ten million people basically, you know. That's a lot of friggin' people that are relying on the fact that shows are out, you know, happening. So we'll yep, see. It's, I mean
1: it's crazy. Hopefully yeah, sooner than later, you know. I, I completely I, um, agree. Completely I'll go agree. get the vaccine tomorrow if you tell me I can go back to work, fine,
0: give it yeah, to me. You know, yeah. um, um, um I just yeah. want to go
1: back to work. It's weird not having purpose.
0: Well, especially for a guy with 14 jobs at any given moment, you know, it's, it's even weirder for you. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, and I, and I always, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm not actively looking for work, but I, yeah. I, I always answer the phone, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I've got a family and yeah. responsibilities and And, uh, I'm a glutton for punishment sometimes occasionally I take on more than maybe I should, but I've never failed, you know, everything's always going really well. So, um, you know, if the phone rings, I answer it, believe me. Um,
0: um,
1: I hate turning down work and I've managed to not, um, I've always managed to work it out for the most part. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. That's amazing. But, uh, well, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, Michael. And, um, you know, I, I hope that you and everyone is back to work Sooner than later, because uh, yeah, it's getting a little old at this point. It's like Groundhog Day, watching the same movie every day. You know.
1: Yep, it is, yeah, and um, I, I, I hope too. I know there's a lot of people out there who, who really want to go back, and a lot of people who need help. Hopefully, the government will pass this stimulus yeah. thing in the next couple of days here, and we'll, see. we'll get we'll vaccinated, see. and we'll figure out a way to have a vaccine and go back to work. I'm with um, you on that. Obviously- one still issues so i appreciate you you having me and
0: um no have have an amazing day be safe be well and uh and i hope to talk to you again soon okay definitely thank you thanks marcel all right buddy thank you very much see ya